Hello, and welcome to the Digital Workspace Works podcast. I'm Ryan Purvis, your host, supported by our producer, Heather Bicknell. In this series, you'll hear stories and opinions from experts in the field, stories from the front lines, the problems they face and how they solve them, the areas they're focused on from technology, people and processes, to the approaches they took that will help you to get to the scripts for the digital workspace inner workings. So welcome, Matt, to the Digital Workspace Works podcast. Do you want to give us a bit of an introduction to yourself and your company, please? Sure, right. Yeah, so my name is Matt Genovese. I, the background, I heard some of the other guests have gone back to when they were kids, and I thought, oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the truth for me, too. And, you know, I did start all the way back then. I was uh, a child of the 80s. I guess I'm, I'm considered Gen X through and through. I was uh, working on the Commodore VIC-20 if anybody remembers that, and then the Commodore 64. And I grew up on a farm, so we didn't have any other. I, there was only one other kid around that was my age, but outside of that, it was chickens and cows. And so my my parents said, you know, go learn how to use it. So I taught myself basic. And then by middle school, I was doing assembly language on it and learning about interrupt routines and how to write all kinds of fun things at the lower level. And I really enjoyed it. I, I knew that when I grew up, I eventually wanted to work in technology in some way. And this was back when I was, you know, 11, 12 years old, I guess. And then fast forward, I had gone to university for computer engineering at a school called RIT up in Rochester, New York, and then came down and worked for Motorola. And I, I guess the, the funny story is that I had, as a kid, I remember seeing the copyrights for Motorola on the Commodore 64. It said copyright 1977, I believe. For Motorola because the main processor inside that Commodore was a Motorola chip. And I thought, you know, I really like the Commodore. I'd, maybe it'd be nice to work for Motorola one day. And it turns out after going to school and going down and, and moving to Austin, Texas, I worked for Motorola. And unbeknownst to me, I ended up working for the design manager on the original 6800 processor. That was the architecture for the chip that was in my Commodore. So I, I kind of came full circle that way. <laughs> But then I, I worked about half my career in semiconductors and hardware, and then I, I moved over into software, working in, in various roles in product management. And what I found was that I'm you know, having a background that goes all the way down to the ones and zeros was really helpful because mm-hmm. I, I never I never really liked the idea of a black box. You know, it's yeah. useful sometimes to have models where you don't have to care about what's going on inside. But for me, I always wanted to understand what was happening below you know, under the hood and then under that hood and then under the hood below that hood, right? And so working in product, it was easy for me to start breaking down problems and figuring out uh, how is this going to work and what are the challenges and what are the trade-offs, even thinking down to the to the hardware level. And so if you fast forward, I started a company called Planorama Design focused on design and requirements of software and where, where our claim to fame is, is that we really do think through as much as we can up front in terms of planning and requirements, try to understand where the challenges might be, think through those, do the an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure philosophy and, and understand as much as we can. And then do the UX design and the documentation, the user stories, test cases, so the development team can execute. And that's what normally for our clients sets us apart because we're enabling all the downstream teams to execute efficiently and have what they need in terms of documentation so they can pick up the pick up the baton and run 
and execute and do so and, and you know, in turn, get features out the door more quickly and save money in the process. So I think that's in a nutshell what I, <laughs> my background leading up to today. Great. I mean, I got lots of questions. I mean, what are, what are your thoughts? And maybe just a sort of one diagonal, I guess. What are your thoughts on the low-code, no-code world that's starting to grow up? Oh, interesting. In well, there have been low-code for some time. And usually that's a trade-off between flexibility. And by the way, flexibility in parentheses, flexibility with future expandability. And that and then you're trading that off for speed to get something to market, to, to test it out. So I think in the end, you have tended to pay for the success later on <laughs> by having to rework an application or just regenerate it from scratch if you've if it's been in you know some web environment that was used to create it because it's just not scalable. And it can be scalable in terms of performance or it can be you know scalable in terms of what you can do with it, right? Because you're kind of boxed into whatever framework they, they provide you on that low code. Again, you lose flexibility. However, I'll say that with a, a lot of the work that has been done with language models and development that has been assisted by language models, I think we're moving quickly towards a day where it's not going to be low code as much as it will be you don't need to code as much and there'll be a level of automation so that this drawback of inflexibility will not be an issue anymore. Mm. And that the code can be written for you based on a good specification, based on if you supply good requirements, the work can be automated, I believe, in the future such that the build will be happening to a large part by the AI and probably assisted by developers too. But the, what that means is that the cost will come way down, probably mm. to the place where you have these low-code frameworks today. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, I'm glad you went the route you went, and it was a bit of a loaded question, because one of the things that I'm involved in is a, a low-code, no-code platform that generates the code for you. It, well, so, so what, we, what we're doing, which is, I suppose, the one approach, is we're taking the, giving the user the ability to create their interface using widgets. Mm -hmm. So drag and drop mm -hmm. the widget that you want. Yes. And that's the no-code part of it. So you drag on whatever whatever widgets, are, greetings widget, whatever it is. But let's say out of the widget stack we have, you still want to do something that requires a little bit of HTML or style sheets or, or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. You have that ability as well. So that's where the low-code part comes in. And then you can bubble, oh, up, the, bubble up the the data model that exists. So you can get to a field that's in the data model. Sure. And with the the other thing we're doing is we're allowing you to group the widgets together to create your own widgets. Mm -hmm. So you have that, you know, very much like in, in, in PowerPoint, you can group things together. But right. the, the, the generative power is that when you drag the widget on and you save the page, that generates all the backend code mm -hmm. to do whatever that's you right. want it to do. And specifically how we're approaching it is for FinTech. So when you drag on your check my balance, widget, whatever the app builder person who's building their business has signed up for, for the accounting, for the bank, mm -hmm. banking as a service, it'll have the APIs in place to go and do that. So you don't have to worry about doing all uh, that stuff. And that's sure. really the, you know, making making APIs beautiful is is one of the slogans we've been playing with. Um, oh, very clever. Yeah, mm -hmm. not, I'm, not my wording. I'm, I'm too uh, much of a Neanderthal to come up with stuff like that. <laughs> but it, it, it does make sense because, you know, if I look at all the stuff, I'm sure you would say the same thing, but, you know, whenever you go and build an application, building the UI part actually can mostly be the easiest part sometimes. And I say that with a bit of a inverted commas because mm -hmm. it's only when you start running into the technical challenges and the integration problems that you start realizing that some of the UI things you thought you were going to be doing will have to behave differently. There might be a different sequence. 
might be some compliance, right. there might be some regulation. So one of the things that we do by building the platform like we have is we take care of the compliance and the regulation. So mm-hmm. in the case of doing a transfer or a bank payment in the UK, there are certain screens you have to have. So you don't have to worry That's about right. whether you have those screens or not. So when you go and drag it all out, it'll generate those things for you. Same as when mm-hmm. you do an international transfer, there'll be different things and it'll be different per regulation, you know, jurisdiction. But what I, what I like about what you're saying is that, and this is the thing that we, we might actually talk about this after, uh, on a side thing, is that one of the things we struggle with, with customers is conceptually, they've never built the app before. They've never built the web interface before. Mm-hmm. So they want, they always want a designer to come in and, and build that for them. Now we can show them examples and we've got different flavors and the rest of it. Sure. But sometimes is that conversation, that consultative approach to tease out what's the experience you want, what are the things you're trying to achieve, what makes your That's app right. different to the other guys. And I, and I don't know what your thoughts are on any of this stuff, but I, I welcome mm-hmm. your experience. Sure. No, I, I think it's a, I, I understand where you're coming from. It's a very smart, clever way of attacking the problem of the business logic to, to handle the APIs and so on. So you don't have to get involved in that, in that set of work. And you're looking at it certainly in fintech from a compliance point of view, but in, if you generalize it to any application, you've got not only compliance, more or less, depending on the area that you're within, but just business rules in general that you have to adhere to. UX design and requirements and the, the work that we do at Planorama really focuses on that front, I'll say, before the engineering begin, before the development begins, to understand what are the pain points, what are the jobs to be done, what are the problems that customers have, how do they think, what is their mental model. And then you have to incorporate, certainly from the other side, you certainly have to pull in technical limitations and boundaries, compliance, you know, and you you mux all that together into a design that satisfies the needs of the user Right. And various types of users, not always one type of user, there's many types of users, including ones that are not the primaries, like administrators, customer administrators, even from the customer side or internal administrators Mm. and customer support. Right. All the different rules. You have to think through all of that capability and as well address performance issues, technical limitations, again, compliance. And at that point, when you've, you know, almost like in MATLAB, when you have multivariable equations and you finally find the, the local min or local max, when you found that optimum point, at that place, now you're ready to actually start doing some design work to map yep. out screens that you can test with users of different yep. of these different types and de-risk all of that development to come. So I'll agree with what you said, that these low-code frameworks are great for addressing certain issues. But the UX and really, you know, backing up to a larger level, the requirements is the bigger issue. And once you understand that, then mapping out the screens and what people tend to think UX is, is just pretty pictures or making it look nice, you know, which is such an oversimplification of the issue. You need to get to the place where now you can tell the other teams or the low-code framework or whoever's involved in the engineering what to actually build. I've heard it said, and I think it's a good way to think of it, although it's not a it's not a hard and fast rule, but engineers are typically really good at building products, understanding limitations of the products, but they rarely get into the actual pain points of the customers and users and really understanding that. So you can build a great product that nobody wants to use, right? And there's, there's lots of instances <laughs> of that happening. There's graveyards of, of that. But, yeah. you know, technically, it's really the it's a beautiful product when you look at how it was written and the extent, you know, extensibility of it. And then it just goes off, you know, into a graveyard because it, it never really got to be successful in the marketplace. I, so, I'm laughing because there's a product that I've had a good long history with called Sistrack. 
I mean, by Lakeside Software. Okay. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's a great product, but it's a very technical product. And, mm. and and it's a product that you would use to monitor your desktops, to do root cause analysis, monitoring, all that kind of stuff. And I'm laughing not because there's anything wrong with the product. I think the product is a great product. It's one of the reasons why I endorse it so much. Uh, and there's actually mm-hmm. a lot of good products in this space, to be fair, Control Up and uh, a few others. But these are products that unless you're a technical, like they're built by a technical person for a technical person. So when yeah. you meet that yeah. person who really gets the data, they love it. They're like, oh, this thing tells me everything I need to know. But when you take it to a business user, it's like, I don't know, I can't even think of the analogy. It's like putting them in, the, in a horror movie with, you know, they, they just don't want to, yeah. like, this is complicated, this is too much information, you know, just tell me the simple answer, do I need to buy two screens or one? But yeah. it's one of those things where you need to have, like, I think, you know, in that case, it does the job it's supposed to do. I mean, there's yes, there's definitely usability issues with it. But the value of, of something like that is when you get abstracted and aggregated to the simplest thing, and and often the sort of conversations I have are like, and it ties it back to the objectives, what are you trying to achieve? And then trying to find the data point that matches that and then to tell the story. And the reason why I'm bringing that up is that I think often, and, and I think it's becoming much more common now, when people build software, they're no longer building it very functionally like they did, you know, the sort of you know, the old waterfall approach, you know, whatever. Now mm-hmm. Agile's come along and everyone uses it. And now people hate Agile. They're going back to sort of something else. I don't know. Yeah. But I think yeah. when you can get to this ability to sketch out the story of what you're trying to solve with the product you're building and almost mm-hmm. break it up into those little nuggets, you know, like almost like I, I always I kind of get using the analogy of a compendium of, of short stories to build the product. Mm. Mm-hmm. that's a good place to be because then you can you, you start getting the marks for the people that are going to use the tool in different scenarios but sharing the that's data right. the core that's characters right. are the same that's right it's it's a you know we there's a term that's often used in, in ux design and product design called jobs to be done it's a very mm-hmm. easy term to say because everybody gets it you know you go into work during the day you go to do something you have certain things that need to be done certain jobs to be done and those to some degree become the short stories in your vernacular that you're using, right? Where they, I have to accomplish these things and here's the reasons why. Here's what I'm trying to accomplish. And sometimes every one of those will map into features. And sometimes you just sit back and you realize, oh, we could automate this whole thing in a different way, right? And make it that much better. As long as the user has the mindset in order to be able to adjust, because it, typically in UX design, you're trying to mold the application to the user's mindset. So you don't wanna have to make them you know, wrap their heads around it. That's what it used to be, by the way, in the 80s and 90s, right? All that training was required. And you just, you know, I remember so many times I was, when I was in high school, I worked for the school district that I, I went to. And I worked with teachers, my teachers. I'd go and help them learn how to use the different software or the mainframe tools. And it was always sit down like, oh, I got to figure out how to get, I got to get my head around this. I got to understand how to do these things. And there just wasn't this sense that the application can be made to be easier to use. It was always the the frame of mind that the user had to wrap their heads around it. It was a tool because computers were new, right? And then later on, it was there this sense that, oh, you can, you know, there's ways that you can make the software easier. And this is what, when I started learning about UX design, you know, later on in my career and realizing that this was really part of of requirements, right? If you let engineers sit down and build the software, they will build it so they can use it because they're the ones that have to use it and test it, you know, including the QA folks. It doesn't mean that the actual, that the the end customer, that doesn't mean it was designed for the end customer to be able to, to use themselves. It just means functionally it's correct. And I've gotten pretty good, by the way, at figuring out when applications were built by developers, 
or designed by <laughs> developers because it ends up being the you know variations of the database put on the screen you know, with a big submit button, right? And then that's the easiest to do, right? Take what the user typed in, do some validation on it, and then just paste it in the database table. There you go. Yeah. And yeah. That's, that's easy to QA. It's easy to develop, but it's probably not the optimal experience for, for the user by any stretch. I worked for a bank and we had a form built in ServiceNow to remove a piece of software from your desktop. It had something like 27 fields to fill in. <laughs> and... And oh you know, we replaced that with a one-click button. And the irony of that mm -hmm. 27 fields is all the 20, except for maybe one field, all that information was information we already had. So we knew who you were, we knew all that stuff, but they made it this mm -hmm. very complicated. And that was the perfect example of a technical person had built this thing because that's they understood what they needed to do the thing. But because of whatever reason, they couldn't get to the data at that point, so they built this complicated form. And then, mm -hmm. you know, you've got 130,000 people having software installed on their desktop that they don't need, and you're paying for licenses. Yeah. So the cost of that decision was never mm -hmm. felt by anybody. But when you start realizing that when they start clicking the, the remove button, and I can't remember what the stat was, but I think like the first day we had like 10,000 removals just because they can mm. press the button once. And, you know, it, it's just an exponential number for what you're saving for the mm -hmm. business. There was something I wanted to ask you. I mean, what, what is your approach when you engage with a new customer or whatever scenario it is. I mean, how do you take it with them? Where's your starting point and where do you try to get to in a period of time? Well, I mean, our approach, every customer is coming in at a different place. Sometimes they're building a new product or sometimes they're extending or adding on to an ecosystem of existing products. They may have a, a mature process internally or they, they may not, right? So we, we have to come in and, and have some initial conversations to understand where they're at and what their challenges are. But realistically, our entry point is to smooth out the rug for them in terms of their process from customer requirements to development. That's often where I see the struggle for many companies is that they have a process that is either not getting features out quick enough, it's costing too much, they're having to do a lot of rework, customers are not happy with the product on the whole, and so after we understand those challenges, and it doesn't take long to do it, this is not a six month, you know, consulting <laughs> arrangement to figure out what all their problems are, okay? We're not coming in like, like one of the big consulting firms. We then start thinking through, well, okay, well, given where they're at today, maybe we have to go and talk with some customers, existing customers or prospective customers, users, start assessing where some of the challenges are. If it's an existing product, we may, normally we're working alongside their product manager in, in somewhat of a consultative role to help them as well with their work. But, you know, after we get started executing, we're trying to, you know, understand where the challenges are in the design, the current design, or start creating a, a plan for a new design if it's a new application. Put together a priority list of what needs to be tackled next. Some kind of scope that we can all look at and put our heads around. We even built a tool uh, ourselves called Symphonia, which is a, a tool for capturing scope and thinking through and ensuring that we, we have elaborated the requirements in a way that everybody can see and understand. And then we start execution. And sometimes that execution, it, most likely it's going to be mapping out some diagrams and understanding who's using the system and what they're going to be doing with it to address these certain jobs to be done or these features that need to be built. And then we, we use that time of discussion and collaboration to ensure that we're going to be designing the right thing to de-risk our design work coming up front. And then finally, we go into the design and create the, the high fidelity UX and UI design. Sometimes we're creating prototypes 
that can be that are clickable, that look and feel like the end application. And the user, we can put them in front of actual users or customers and get feedback on them before any development has ever been executed. And then when we're, we de-risk that, then we go into the, to the design, the design work. And that comes with the full set of designs, the user stories, test cases. And that's where the development team uses our output as their input effectively for their sprints or whatever methodology yeah. they're using. And then they execute from there. And we try to establish a lot of feedback loops and touch points so that we're all on the same page during the whole process. And again, if we follow that, we find that there's very little trip ups. You know, people mm -hmm. are given what they need to be successful on the product development team. And then everything just flows more smoothly out the door. Yeah, I mean, I think you once again, you're solving a core pain for lots of lots of people. And I'm, and I'm thinking about customers and work that I've done in my career where one of the biggest problems is just trying to be clear on what is the, let's call it the minimum viable product. What is the next version of that look like? And what mm -hmm. often happens, and, I, and I'm guilty of this too, is that, you know, in your mind, you can see version one, version two, version three, version four of what you want to do and getting the sequence right. But then when you're talking about it, you kind of jump to version four, forgetting that you've actually got to start with version one. And then yeah. what ends up happening is you build the skyscraper or the rocket ship and all mm -hmm. you actually needed was the VW Beetle to get you from A to B. And yeah, it's it's a it's a tricky one. And I'm very interested to see this tool that you've built because you know I, I've sort of built my own management tool for for this stuff using Notion, which is a great tool to begin with because it's it's nice and flexible. It's like Excel but a little bit, but whatever. I don't know if you've yeah. ever used Notion. And I find that with the combination of Miro boards is a quite a nice way to sort of better, but it's definitely not the solution. I think it's a nice stopgap. So I'm curious to see what your product, your internal product maybe it is. I don't know if you want to sell it to the people yet, what it looks like. <laughs> well, it's the, 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 I'll tell you, the idea came from, I've been doing this for some time in the managing product requirements yeah. area. And I started realizing this was years ago that, you know, a lot of the tools that I have seen were project management oriented. They're always moving a long time. You know, Kanban boards and things like that. Jira is made to be this. But what I didn't see was something that would help me to manage product requirements, you know, even to the point where I could say, you know, I want to outline a scope and then break that down in, at multiple levels, you know, say take a problem and break it down to a set of sub features or challenges or features, however you want to define it, and then break that down even further. I ended up having to use drawing tools to do this. Yes, exactly. And then when you look and say, well, but I want to link those things to user stories and to test cases and to other types of documents at the time that just wasn't available. So I, it was a lot of manual, it was a lot of a manual process. And when I started thinking about the issue, it was that I couldn't house the requirements in a cohesive place because all the requirements were typically were spread out in different physical locations. And there was not a level of granularity that I could find where I could say, hey, you know, this, this block on this user story map or feature map is not really a user story. That's actually a piece of acceptance criteria, right, for another user story that exists later on. And to be able to have that fine-grained control of linking objects together, what I realized, this is a big graph. It's a giant graph. And being able to traverse through that graph as a product manager, as well as a designer or developer, had a lot of value. Because what I also learned was that developers, they never go back to, well, I don't say never, but every developer <laughs> I've spoken to, yeah, I'm going to be careful. I'm on audio. But every developer I've spoken with said, if they want to find out how it's supposed to work, they go to the code for a given feature. They don't go yeah, to the exactly. spec because they think the spec is out of date, right? But what if the spec wasn't out of date? What if the spec was up to date 
and easily traversable. So you go to a graph and you say, okay, I'm looking for this particular feature. Ah, I found it on this particular feature map or, or the part of the roadmap and it was finished then. And I can jump over and say, okay, what users can use this? Okay, what types of data does this touch? What are the things that are available? All right, it, you can start traversing down a path of these objects effectively that allow you to understand at least the intention of what should have been built. You know, Now, whether it was built or not, that's ultimately up to the company. And I think there are some ways to even address that and keep those in sync. But that was the problem I was trying to solve, not only for product managers, but also for developers and designers, anybody coming into the project or, you know, the project is big enough where you just can't capture it all in your head, right? But you have to be able to traverse through. And the code, while it may be the correct, I mean, it ultimately is what is, is out there in production, probably. It is not the fastest and easiest and I think best way to, to navigate what the feature spec is for your project. And certainly not for anybody who isn't a developer, right? Designers yeah, yeah. and product managers are not going to go through the code typically. So what we, you know, it was an offshoot of what we do at Plan Around because we write the user stories, we write the test cases, and we create the designs. And we do all of this and we deliver it to our clients in their own systems, right? Whether it's in yeah. Jira and, and usually at Confluence and, you know, we try to write really structured and organized documentation. So this was a natural path. We said, well, there's not really a tool that does what we would like in terms of our delivery method. So we're going to build one. And that's what we've been doing. And it's it's meant for us to use, but also it's meant for other people to use too. So to answer your original question, yes, we're just starting to bring on clients to go and use it in a limited capacity right now as we're doing evaluation. But it was really meant to solve the problem of capturing and hosting requirements. Yeah, I mean, you sold me in a lot of ways because that's what you talked about exactly what I've built into Notion. And the reason why I use Notion is because Notion has a concept of blocks mm. and blocks can self-reference. And I mean, it's not a graph database, but it is the same concept. You can self-reference and, and it's a very complicated structure. I mean, I, I don't even want to show you what it looks like in Notion. And, and the problem with Notion is it doesn't it doesn't visualize very well. And all the things you've talked about, you know, the, the breaking down of things into the smaller pieces and then being able to bring it back up. And I mean, if you could get it to the point that that item that you've got in your tool is connected to the check-in or the pull request in source control, right. then you can trace lineage and, and all mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. That's right. So yeah, I mean, I'd love to see where you guys are going with it because I think that's, especially when we start going down the route of generative stuff, generative, generative code, generative user stories. I mean, you know, all the stuff that I do in Notion, the reason why I like it is I can actually write a prompt to generate the user mm -hmm. story for me. It's not perfect, don't get me wrong, you know, I'm not saying it solves mm -hmm. that problem, but at least I don't have to go and write a user story every time from scratch. So when I'm now reviewing a user story, I can fix it and then regenerate the acceptance yeah. criteria. And it just kind of gives you, you, you get that speed, but now mm -hmm. you need to tie that back to other things because otherwise it, get, it kind of sprawls and you want to avoid sprawl. That's exactly right. Well, we've I was smiling, Ryan, because that's exactly the realization I had about a year or so ago. And in fact, in October 2022, we released this little application called UserStoryGenerator.ai. And it was yeah. doing exactly that. We were running at the time, there wasn't even chat GPT, it was on GPT-3. I had downloaded the year, year or so prior, I had downloaded GPT-2, which you, at the time you could still download and compile on your, I had a little Linux box here and I was running it on there to do some generative AI, but only when GPT-3 came out and had the AI, the API did I start really seeing, hey, what can this do for enabling product management and product development teams to, to be more efficient? And with that user story generator, which is a free tool, we learned a lot about how people use it, 
we don't care about the ideas they put in because the idea was to take it from a you know some product idea or description to user stories at the yeah, end of yeah. it. But we wanted to understand the process and you know what it could do. And what we found was that yes, it could help you write user stories, but even better, there were two things. First of all, it could help you get past the blank sheet of paper. It could help you get past the point where you're like, ah, oh, I don't know what to write, right? You're just having some writer's block and to get you to a place where you could go into edit mode, perhaps more than just creation mode, which tends to be faster for a lot of people. And secondly, it did help with brainstorming, thinking through what other areas of this application that I want to build or that I'm working on, am I not thinking about? What should I be thinking mm-hmm. about? And it, the AI, the language models did a really good job of starting yeah. to help you think about especially if you're thinking about roles, right? So many people think about, well, here's the end customer and they have two or three roles that they're gonna be in. And then there's other administrative roles too. Well, the administration is also very important. In fact, when we work on scoping with our clients and thinking through any feature that's required, one of the immediate next questions is, well, how are we gonna administrate this feature? What do we need to allow for, You know, what variability do we need to allow or customization so that you don't need to have development go and help you do something later on when you learn something new where customers require X, Y, and Z or customer administration, right? When they have to manage roles and permissions and data access and policies and things like that. Thinking through that and having this kind of virtual assistant, this virtual product management assistant to help you think through that is very useful because product management in the end of the day is a pretty lonely job. And if you can benefit from having this sidekick to help you think about what you is in your blind spot, it was really useful. And that's what we built into Symphonia actually was this ability to have it help you brainstorm and also help you think about how to break down some of those problems in that feature map where you start from you know either a high level or in a mid level and say, okay, I think I've got this organized the way I want. I want to have it start helping me break down into possible tasks that need to be done, right? And it's it's not meant to replace product managers by any stretch. It's to accelerate them and again, help them identify blind spots and work more quickly and efficiently and certainly not feel alone in the process. Because like I said, having been a product management person myself, you can certainly feel like it's all on you, right? Yeah, yeah, you can be very easily overwhelmed. I'm finding that now at the moment because it's a new space for me. So I'm finding the frame, I don't have that frame of reference when people say things. So, you, you know, often you are kind of going, they said this thing, what the hell does that acronym mean? Or what does that word mean? <laughs> like a remittance versus yeah. a transfer versus whatever. And yeah. You know, it's good because you it forces you to learn, and that's you know a positive thing. But also, you're slowing people down because you got to learn. And mm-hmm. the way you've approached it with what you do with product, we've done something similar with another product of mine, value with OKRs. Mm-hmm. So OKRs, if you say to someone, "What's your objective?" They get sometimes yeah. they get a little bit concerned that they haven't said the right objective or they haven't said it in the right way. Mm-hmm. And part of that process is just let you to say, "Look, you know, it needs to have a number, it needs to have a date, and we need to know what the outcome is." So let's work out to what your outcomes are. And then that sort of starts the conversation. That's the consultative approach. And I've been toying with using a conversational AI to do that. And I'm wondering, part of me says, yeah, you could do that for some people and they'd be happy with that. But some people like the conversation. They like to have the brainstorming. They like to see you Mm -hmm. struggle with it as well. Sure. Which I thought was very interesting feedback from somebody. So, well, actually, I don't, I I know I could go do chat TDP and do this and it'll probably be quick. But then Mm -hmm. I don't, then it's too easy. I want to see somebody else struggle with what I'm thinking about. And I was <laughs> well, like, oh, at the end, quite interesting. <laughs> probably the person who's doing it is going to be using chat GPT anyway, these days, it's useful as a tool to help broaden your perspective. I think yeah. the challenge is it's so new right now, like many types of brand new technologies to the market. There's a 
a question of well, how far does this go? Yeah, yeah. And there's certainly a desire for certain types of folks to say, well, can I just remove my brain and put this in and let it do all the work for me? And I, I can just sit on a, you know, sit on a beach and just press the enter button a few times and things magically happen on my behalf. And I don't think that AI is certainly an easy button for many things that we've never seen before, but yeah. it is not in any way a permission to, to just extract yourself entirely from the situation. For example, yeah. user story generator and Symfonia that I was just telling you about, right? It can think up features and user stories for you. Great. But you can't be sure that that's actually solving any of the problems for your customer. It's giving you points to investigate further. And again, to look for areas that perhaps you hadn't thought of, but you still need to do the investigation yourself as a human to validate that these issues are actually one's worth pursuing. Yeah, you're 100% right. And, and I mean, that's even with the notion stuff that I'm doing, you know, you still got to spend mm -hmm. the time looking through it and go, yeah, that looks right. Okay, that's probably, you know, it hasn't got this at all. Like it's completely missed the boat yeah. on this one. And that's fine. But you still, you know, as I said, you, you're not spending a lot of time trying to regenerate or you're not trying to write all the use story yourself. You're now just checking yes. and, and, and tweaking. And I do find, and actually someone taught me this skill last week, you can now create your own chat GDP, which is private if you're paying for it. You have to pay for it, obviously, but but now you can privatize it. And, you know, I'm now loading up stuff in there to teach it mm -hmm. all our stuff to see if that would work. And if that works, then I think, you know, I'm a lot more comfortable to let it go and generate the user stories because now I know it knows about, you know, in this case, Phoenix One and the other one will be value yeah. to, to do the right, right things. I think we're going to find ourselves in some areas playing the role of, of oversight you know, looking at what it has generated and saying, yes, that's correct, or no, I need to tweak that. But that tends to be faster. If you do it in a structured way, that tends to be faster than having to write it all from scratch. Yeah, uh, We've been very careful with that. And again, in the tool that we built, you know, it can generate a feature map for you of level one, two, and three, we call it basically the top level, you know, area or the top level activity, and then breaking it down into feature areas and then breaking them down into individual features. We could build all that from scratch and just throw it all on the screen and say, here, here you go, here's your scope. But yeah. that is really not solving the problem for the product manager because they have to go and absorb it all. Right. Yes. And maybe yes, exactly. maybe some of that is incorrect. So you have to put in some of these points of oversight and say, look, this is what we produced. Does this make sense? Let's go edit and change what move things around. And then once you're agreed that that is correct, now we go and break it down again. And now you have a chance to review further and walk them through a process. So I don't think everything's going to become a chat prompt. I mm. think you still have value and the UX I think going forward is going to be if there is AI built into the application, which it seems like today it's going to be hard, you know, to imagine ones that won't. You still have to have the UX there to assist the user going through the process of accomplishing what they need to do, and you pull in AI at the right points. Sometimes it may not be. A, I mean, not everything is going to be a chat, right? I think there are some areas that will be conversational. But not every, mm. not everything by a stretch. And having the AI, I'm having the UX help you to walk through the process of your job to be done. You're leveraging AI as a tool, but AI is not becoming the the end, you know, the end. It's the means to the end. Yeah, right? it's assisting you through that process. Yeah, I mean, I had this conversation with some people on Saturday night. I was so because I'd learned the skill now of ChatGPT. I was generating my kids' comic book, and yes. I was showing them, and they were oh, and obviously yeah, it was a lot of fun and. Mm -hmm. And they were saying, like, this AI stuff's beyond me. And I said, well, to be honest with you, you need to get your head into some of this stuff because, you know, the future of your jobs will change. And if you're not savvy 
And I mean, I'm not saying you have to be an AI expert, but if you don't know how to go and if you don't know where ChatGDP is, you're already behind. Mm -hmm. And yeah, that's the truth. You don't have to you don't have to go learn long, large language models. You don't have to you know stuff, but you need to be comfortable that when you go into a conversation, you know what people are talking about because that's the minimum now for a lot of people. I think we're finding the extents of what's possible. And the more yeah. that you go in and play around, you figure out, oh, it's good at this and it's not good at that. And if you're on a product team, that does help you to, to know where it could be useful and where it certainly might not be, right? And that's, yeah, that's the and, value of doing exactly what you said. Yeah, and, and I think there is a level of exploring it as part of day-to-day -day stuff and then realizing that you've got to put in your own guardrails. So for yes. example, you know, not every customer wants it to be incorporated. So you need to be able to turn it mm -hmm. off you know, you cannot build your whole product around using an AI because some people, <laughs> you know, right. like, like a bank may not want to use it because they don't want to put their data into it. So mm -hmm. it's those sorts of things. But I think that's just natural evolution. Matt, unfortunately, I need to end it off here because I've got to go fetch the kids from nursery. No problem. It's <laughs> that time of the day. It's <laughs> um, a good reason. Yeah. How best do you want to get hold of you? Oh, sure. It'd probably be the easiest to go to our website, planorama.design slash podcast. Yep. And so, yeah, the, the domain is actually dot .design. So it's plan, Planorama with a sort of panorama. It's a PL, so plan, like Planorama.design slash podcast. And that has links to find me on LinkedIn. And, and even if you want to set up a call and talk through certain things, we're happy to do that as well. So it's the easiest way to get hold of me. Great. And it's been great chatting with you. I've really enjoyed it. And I will definitely I get in too. contact with you in, in following up. That sounds wonderful. I'm looking forward to it. I had a really great time. The time went by really quick. <laughs> yeah, it did. <laughs> it really did. Always a good sign. Thank you, Ryan. Super, Thank Matt. You. All the best. Cheers, Dave. Thank you. Bye. Take care. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Heather Bicknell is our producer and editor. Thank you, Heather, for your hard work on this episode. Please subscribe to the series and rate us on iTunes or the Google Play Store. Follow us on Twitter at the DWW Podcast. The show notes and transcripts will be available on the website, www.digitalworkspace.works. Please also visit our website, www.digitalworkspace.works, and subscribe to our newsletter. And lastly, if you found this episode useful, please share with your friends or colleagues.